Good morning. It's good to gather and worship together today. Uh, and I'll echo in saying Happy Mother's Day. Uh, this, the church is a place where we are meant to join one another and journey together through these important moments in life. And motherhood is one of those moments that we love to join one another in. And our church has a number of wonderful mothers, some of whom are uh, in the early trenches of motherhood, uh, others who have gone on to become grandmothers and so on. Um, but regardless, today we answer the call to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we celebrate you and honor you today. And though motherhood and Mother's Day is a joyful occasion for many, it can also be a far more complicated occasion for others. There are mothers who've lost their children. There are families separated by conflict. There are those who have loved but lost their mothers. And so today we also answer the call to weep with those who weep as we journey together through all of this that motherhood may hold. And in all the, the weeping and the rejoicing that Mother's Day brings, it is a good day to remember the words that God spoke through Isaiah. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And even to those who have perhaps had complicated relationships with their mothers, God has said, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Well, even if she does forget, I will not forget you. Though we pray to God as our father, he is, as a friend has said, our mothering father. He is our divine caretaker, offering comfort in our weeping and celebration in our rejoicing. So wherever you find yourself today, we bless you. Wherever we find ourselves today, we bless God, who is the perfect parent of us all. So, why do we pause in, in moments like this in our gatherings to, to name these things as, as we journey together? Uh, well, one of the reasons is because this table in the wilderness that we've been exploring together is a place where we are meant to be known by one another, no matter what your story may be. Uh, because this table is a place to belong, no matter who you are. And it is a table, a place for us to grow as we turn our eyes toward God together. That is what this place is for, to join with and journey together here. And today I want to touch on just one more aspect of this wilderness table. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is where we are heading today. And the book of Revelation, if you are familiar with it at all, uh, is a strange book filled with 
colorful imagery, right? Uh, some of these images are perplexing and confusing. Some of them are chaotic and overwhelming. Some of them are utterly beautiful and awe-inspiring. And uh, all of them are meant to fill us with an unshakable and eternal hope. That's what this book is all about. And one of the images that appears in the book of Revelation is the image of a table. The image of a table. And so we see here, as, as we will read, that in addition to being a place to be known, to grow, and to belong, the table is a place to rejoice. It's a place to celebrate and to rejoice. So let's read Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And at this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this invitation to the feast. We thank you for setting a table of rejoicing and celebration for us. And so I ask that as we consider your words today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'd like for you to recall for a moment a great celebration that you've seen or experienced. Maybe it was a wedding or graduation, a holiday, 
a birthday party? What does it feel like to celebrate? What does it feel like to rejoice? I have learned something about celebration from Caitlin's family. Uh, They have some well-established traditions of celebration. And I will never forget the first time I encountered some of their birthday celebration traditions. Uh, To this day, her family gathers and throws big celebrations together for their birthdays, uh, complete with special appetizers, food, dessert, music. There's a parade involved, and there's always a theme. There's always a theme that's chosen. It is a true occasion for celebration. It's amazing. And the first time that I ever encountered this was when Caitlin and I were early in our friendship, not officially dating yet, and it was her birthday. And she was going to her family's house for the big celebration. And the theme that they chose for her was Phoenix, rising from the ashes. Right? That was the theme that she had. You know the legend of the phoenix, a mythical bird that bursts into flames and then is reborn from the ashes. Uh, that was the theme. And so she texted me about it, and then she sent me this photo. Her family fully committed to the phoenix rising from the ashes theme. Uh, they, you know, this makeshift nest with twigs and branches and bright, colorful eggs, and there Caitlin is right there in the middle, uh, her phoenix nest. It was amazing, right? I mean, just look at that. Uh, and I mean, every birthday is, is this wonderful and this extravagant. It's fantastic. This is the power of celebration. This is the power of celebration. And this celebration itself is amazing in and of itself. But what makes it even more amazing is its context. In the months leading up to this, Caitlin had been going through a difficult divorce at the end, after the end of a painful marriage. And so this was not only a fun celebration, it was an act of redemption. Uh, this you know, was not only a, a playful birthday theme of Phoenix rising from the ashes, this was a statement of God over her life, that there would in fact be life after the pain of death. This is what celebration can be. It's a powerful thing. And this is the kind of celebration that we see in our text. This is the kind of celebration that happens at this table in the wilderness, this place to rejoice. It's the divine celebration and rejoicing that takes place here in Revelation 19. The rejoicing itself is an act of redemption in the face of former devastation. So let's look a little closer at it. Revelation 19, as we've just read, is a picture of great celebration, of rejoicing. It has this constant 
chorus of hallelujahs that build and build and build on one another. Most of you are probably familiar with Handel's Messiah, uh, and it, it builds toward that famous hallelujah chorus, right? We got to go see Handel's Messiah with the Seattle Symphony this past year, uh, and whenever the hallelujah chorus erupted, it was just this amazing moment, and I was like, oh, here it is. Like, this is the real thing, right? That, this passage is what that is based on. Uh, this passage is what the Hallelujah Chorus was based on. It's this loud, resounding chorus of hallelujahs, hallelujahs. There are multitudes of people singing and shouting. There are heavenly beings crying out, and even God himself joins the chorus. It's a powerful picture of celebration. But what makes it even more powerful is its context. The chapter begins with the words, after this. After this. Well, after what? Well, the previous couple of chapters have described the ancient city of Babylon, which is depicted as a violent prostitute. Chapter 17 says, then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns, right? These are the crazy images we have in Revelation. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. It's a different kind of of Mother's Day there. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. The image of Babylon here is getting into the imaginations of God's people and the memories of God's people because it stretches all the way back to the history of God's people when they were the nation of Israel living in God's promised land, this home that they had had, but then they were attacked, overpowered, and brought to exile in Babylon. In Babylon. Babylon is the great enemy of God's people. But the image even goes back further because within that idea of Babylon, there's also an echoing of the story of Babel all the way in Genesis chapter 11. And if you remember the story of Babel, it's the story of a people who take it upon themselves to build up themselves apart from God. And so this image of Babylon is one in opposition to God and in opposition to God's people. And it's this violent image of a prostitute corrupting the earth. And the author of Revelation applies this image to his present time. Uh, You know, it's not only the history of the Babylonian exile. 
It's not only the history of the Tower of Babel. There is this present reality of persecution and challenge that God's people are facing. In the final part of this passage, the woman who is Babylon was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so this Babylon empire of exile is very much still real to God's people at that time. And do you notice that this vision occurs in a wilderness? This is a wilderness in which we still find ourselves. A wilderness of forces opposed to us and opposed to God. We are still attacked by Babylon the Great. We are still seduced by her power. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 6 when he said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're still engaged in this battle. We're still stuck in this wilderness of exile as God's people. Powers and forces today. Well, really, they're the same ones that have been up against God and God's people all along. The powers behind Babel and Babylon. And today we might call them individualism and nihilism. I think these are two core things that are at war for our souls and our culture today and the world that we live in. Individualism is baked deep into American culture, right? There's an every man for himself, a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, pioneering way of life that has been with us ever since we've come here. There's this constant temptation to self-sufficiency as the definition of success. And because of this, there's an increasing resistance to deep, genuine, vulnerable connection with each other. Because if I need other people, then I haven't succeeded. Self-sufficiency is how we measure success. And so we live in a world where instead of reaching out to an actual person in proximity to us, we reach out to Google. We live in a world where instead of building friendships, we often find ourselves watching shows, scrolling through social media, maybe doing both of those things at the same time. Because why not? You know, our attention span's so uh, broken apart. Let's let's just, you know, half watch, half scroll, half do something else. This individualism is eating away at who we're meant to be. And as this individualism cuts us off from community, we sink into loneliness, and it leads to the second great enemy of our day, nihilism. Nihilism is the essential spirit of exile. This idea that nothing really matters. Everything is essentially meaningless. Relationships are fruitless. Life doesn't matter. 
Nihilism will, will call us to, to sink into depression or it'll cause us to flit about from one distraction to the next to the next, finding whatever the next fix is. It's why drug use is one of the most concerning mental health and physical health issues in our society across all socioeconomic statuses. It's the fruit of nihilism. There's no point, right? One of the great pictures of this kind of nihilism taking place in exile is depicted in Psalm 137, uh, which begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, the trees, we hung up our harps. For our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs from Zion. And they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord? while in a foreign land. There's no point in worshiping God here anymore because we're in exile. We've already lost. Everything is meaningless. And if you keep reading Psalm 137, it just gets darker and darker. And this psalm ends with a a voice of violence and vengeance like almost no other psalm has because those people in exile have become Babylonians themselves. They've been so wrapped up into the culture that swallowed them up that they have become violent just like everyone around them. They won't sing God's songs and they're slowly devolving to no longer be God's people. And we face the very same temptations. We face the very same things ourselves today. We still face the individualistic self-sufficiency of Babel. And we still face the hopeless nihilism of Babylon. These forces are still at war with us and in us. They're at war even in the church, right? The church has often embraced this picture of individualism and a a variant of nihilism, right? All that, the whole point of this is for me to get saved and go off to heaven somewhere so this life doesn't matter, right? That's religion co-opted by individualism and religion co-opted by nihilism. Nothing matters other than getting out of here someday. We've all been swimming in the waters of our culture that's sucking us into this way of being. It doesn't matter who you are. By simply living in this culture, you have absolutely bumped into and probably believed one or both of these lies at some point, even if only in subtle ways. At some point through the past year, through the past month, through the past week, maybe even yesterday, maybe even this morning, maybe right now, you have felt either like it was all up to you or it was all for naught. Individualism and nihilism. It's like secondhand smoke. We can't help but breathe it in. We can't avoid it. But what we can do is recognize it for what it is, our spiritual enemy, to be stood against. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. 
It's exactly what we see in this passage. Some of you are saying, I thought this table was a table for rejoicing. I'm feeling pretty down right now. What are you doing? Let's keep going. After this, after the devastations brought by Babylon depicted as this great prostitute, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah! 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 This is what it sounds like to resist the enemy. This is what it sounds like to go to war with the enemy. Every war has a battle cry, doesn't it? The ancient Romans had something that was called the baritus, this guttural growl that the troops would let out. They would march in utter silence, and once they approached their enemy, they would start growling, right? That's scary. Uh, That was their battle cry. Um, You know, the American Revolution had the cry, liberty or death. Uh, Back where I'm from in Texas, you've got remember the Alamo. Um, Even... The film adaptation of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has for Narnia as they charge forward, right? There's always a battle cry. Every war has a battle cry. And the people of God have one too. But ours is not a a, a scary, guttural growl. Ours is not a declaration of our independence and rights. Ours is the word hallelujah, which literally means. Praise the Lord. We confront the forces of darkness not by brute force, in fact, not by any force of our own, but by praising God. That's how we confront the forces against us. Hallelujah! as a reminder to those dark forces of Babel and Babylon, of individualism and nihilism, that they have already lost. Salvation and glory and power belongs to who? Our God. And Jesus' death has already been defeated. In his resurrection, an unshakable and eternal hope has been established. So we war against the wilderness by simply being seated at God's table of rejoicing. Verse 6. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And then look at what happens. The former picture of the prostitute is now replaced by one of a bride. And in the coming chapters, the evil city of Babylon is replaced by the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Continuing in verse 7, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Which is this picture of Jesus. The Lamb who was slain. The one who died and rose again. Now here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Some of us have been ruthlessly attacked by the powers of Babylon. For many of us, it's a daily struggle. The good news is that our cries for help will eventually culminate in a chorus of hallelujahs. Salvation, victory, does belong to our God. Jesus has defeated death. And there is coming a day when Babylon will be no more. And there will be only the new heavens and the new earth where all shall be well. And all things are being made new. Now there are others of us who have not only been attacked by Babylon, but who have perhaps joined in some of those attacks. Some of us have been faithless, like this picture of the great prostitute, and gone chasing after other gods, serving only ourselves and our own desires, harboring bitterness and rage. Perhaps, you feel abominable and filthy, just like the description. And you carry shame and fear. But the good news for you is that God is making all things new. And in Christ, you are not a great prostitute, but a bride, beautiful, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Fine linen, bright and clean, have been given to you to wear. You have been invited to this wilderness table, this wedding feast. And blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so whether you've been rescued from the attacks of Babylon or redeemed from your acts of Babylon, there is cause to rejoice. And even in the middle of the wilderness, there is cause to rejoice. For God is setting a table. And this table in the wilderness is a place to rejoice as we await the full and final victory of God. So as we close, I want to read an excerpt from a liturgy in this book, Every Moment Holy. Some of you may recognize the words that I'm about to read. We read it together at our church feast last fall. But here these words from a liturgy for feasting with friends. To gather joyfully is indeed 
a serious affair. For feasting and all the enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. And I would add, bless us, O Lord, as we rejoice at this table in the wilderness. Amen.